Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of the Palm Beach Chronicles, where we will be exploring a bit about a few of the winter white houses to grace the sunny shores of Palm Beach and all their rich histories. Before we begin this episode, I have a huge thanks to give to our newest supporters over at patreon.com slash done and done. Holy cats, all the good things happening over there, early and ad-free episodes, bonus episodes too. So grateful for each of our supporters, including this week in my spyglass. Big thanks to Christine C., Aha, Stephanie D., and Lisa L. So grateful to you. Thank you for your support simply the best you are. Friends, what an episode today. We're going to take a little tour through a few seasonal White House locations. Presidents do like to vacation, and they will spend their time in many areas of the United States. Today, we focus down on two homes that both have their time in the presidential sun, both in Palm Beach, both with incredible histories. First up, Le Querida. This home is used by the Kennedy family for 62 years with many stories in its walls. And then Mar-a-Lago, built by the legendary heiress and socialite Marjorie Merriweather Post and her then-husband, financier E.F. Hutton. By the time their legendary home is being sold in 1985 to Donald Trump, guess who is right there in Palm Beach hot on the scene to report about it? You know it. Our man, Nick. Let's investigate. I mean, who can't use a vacation every now and then? You like vacations. I like vacations. Presidents like vacations. Seasonal White Houses are not a new thing for presidents, not by a long shot. These seasonal White Houses elsewhere besides Washington, D.C. happen in all kinds of regions throughout the United States. Ulysses S. Grant had his winter White House in Long Branch, New Jersey, just right on the Jersey Shore, where he will spend summers from 1869 to 1877. It is to the Harlequendon House in Cornish, New Hampshire, that Woodrow Wilson heads off to. This particular home was once owned by Winston Churchill, not the prime minister, but the novelist. Woodrow Wilson will make Harlequendon House his summer White House. Theodore Roosevelt will head to Sagamore Hill in Long Island for his summer White House. Sagamore Hill is a 155-acre estate and Theodore Roosevelt raises all six of his children in this place. One more kind of summer White House here in the mix for John F. Kennedy. This would be the Auchincloss home, Hammersmith Farms, located in Newport, Rhode Island. This home has made a few appearances and done and done along the way. Jacqueline Bouvier will make her debut at that home, Jack Kennedy and Jacqueline Bouvier will marry at Hammersmith Farms as well. Before we head down south, let's throw in the Western White House, 
that we have in our mix, President Ronald Reagan, his Western White House, Rancho del Cielo, Ranch in the Heavens. This is Ronald Reagan's retreat for 25 years, and he will even spend one year out of his total eight years in office at his Ranch in the Heavens. But hey, we're here for the Palm Beach Chronicles, and for that we're going to need to head a little bit southward. A few famous summer White Houses, but then the winter White Houses may be more famous, at least for our purposes today. As a Georgia girl, I would be remiss if I did not mention on our way south Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Little White House in Warm Springs, Georgia. FDR will build his presidential retreat near Healing Waters. He believes the magic of those Georgia springs could be recuperative for polio patients from which FDR was afflicted. If we go just a little further south, we make it into the sunshine state of Florida. Harry Truman, when president, will set up shop in Key West on the other side of the Florida coast in his own little White House. This little White House that President Truman loved so much was built by the Navy in 1890. It honestly is really just a little two-family residence, but Truman really loves it here. Even when Harry Truman is done in his presidential run, Harry Truman still heads down to vacation at the Little White House in Key West. Kind of interesting. We will be exploring Key West in the future. Gosh, so many stories we are investigating. Okay, if we head a little northward and a little eastward over to the Atlantic Coast side of Florida and to our 12-mile exclusive pre-heaven for the wealthy island of Palm Beach, we will find two presidents making their winter White Houses on these sunny shores. They are infamous, both houses, and both men, actually, in the history of Palm Beach. What are we talking about? The winter White Houses of John F. Kennedy and Donald Trump, each with their own history, many connections, and spider webs in and out of each of these places. Our man Nick will write about both of these homes, not just in his Palm Beach investigation, but throughout time. We're going to take a little bit of Dominic Dunn's work today and round it out with a little bit more research about these particular presidential island abodes. First up, located at 1095 North Ocean Boulevard, this is right up from the Breakers, and remember, right next door to Molly Wilmot's home, La Querida. It's a big old house, y'all. La Quarita is over 15,000 square feet with 11 bedrooms, 12 bathrooms, and 3 half-bathrooms. But La Quarita was not originally built for the Kennedys. We need to go back in time just a few years to set the stage for this home. The home was originally designed for Rodman Wanamaker of the Philadelphia Department Store family. The year is 1923, and... Our favorite, Addison Meinsner, will design La Querida. It's a simplified Mediterranean-style architecture, and the home is originally named La Querida. Again, I'm not a native Spanish speaker, y'all be kind. This translation, though, L-A-Q-U-E-R-I-D-A, is loosely translated to the dear one, the wanted one. But over time, many places record the name incorrectly, as La Guerrida, 
which is not a dear one at all. La guerrita, with the G and not a Q, translates more to bounty of war. So bounty of war, dear one, not the same thing, I don't think. Let's fill in, though, one of the most influential architects of Palm Beach here. We have talked about him in just about every episode, Addison Meinsner. Holy cats, next to Henry M. Flagler, who Addison partners with, Addison is the next most influential dude when it comes to getting Palm Beach on the map. He is very widely and well-known in the 1920s, give or take five years through that decade, as THE Society Architect, all capital letters, probably all bold. Meissner's style, his designs, his influence on Palm Beach is legendary, but so is the man himself, Addison Meinsner. He stands at six foot three inches tall. He's about 300 pounds. He has a lot of exotic animals for pets, including a pet monkey in his time in Palm Beach. That monkey's name is Johnny Brown. Interesting here, Johnny Brown, the monkey, oddly enough, is buried in Via Meinsner. This is off Worth Avenue next to a Another beloved pet, a beloved dog, Johnny Brown and this beloved dog on Via Meinsner are the only extant graves located in Palm Beach. Meinsner, old Addison, he was born December 12, 1872 in California. His father was the president of the California Senate. He has a lot of siblings. He really does kind of have a fascinating life, larger than life character. Addison apprenticed under San Francisco architect Willis Polk. And Addison is really talented. He kind of does it all. Not just drafting, but interior design, landscape. He's sort of the whole package. Meisner's designs are revolutionary when it comes to establishing an environment. He wants to bring, it sounds very normal today, we want to bring the outside in, right? Addison Meinsner is kind of the first guy to do that. And what better place to do it than Palm Beach, Florida? And Addison Meinsner kind of doing something different. He has a few things to say about Palm Beach. Upon his first view of Whitehall, remember that palatial estate Henry M. Flagler builds for his third wife, Mary Lily Keenan. Addison Meinsner says about Whitehall in a really kind of derogatory term. It's just another Southern-style mansion. It's just transplanted there. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing indicative of the atmosphere and the adaptation to the environment. This is what puts Addison Meinsner on the map. In 1918, Addison is going to design the Everglades Club for Paris Singer. Once this is complete, remember, even though that place was designed as a home for the healing veterans of World War I. Everglades is pretty soon after turned into a private club. This turns out to be wonderful for business when it comes to Addison Meinsner because many commissions follow for private homes. The first one of these we heard about in the last episode, El Mirasol, for Edward and Eva Stotesbury in 1918. Addison Meinsner is 
pretty much going to design the entire town of Palm Beach. Not only homes, but also designs and develops Worth Avenue. Meinsner sets homes on the map in Palm Beach, not just these tiny seaside cottages, but grand homes in addition to private clubs and event spaces. Addison does live in an apartment that he builds himself on Via Meisner, the road that is named for him. And again, he's a really big deal in Palm Beach. Maybe he's the first big deal high society architect here, but he certainly isn't going to be the last when it comes to Palm Beach. Addison Meisner passes away in 1933 with other architects and designers to take on the legacy he leaves, which gets us back to our first house in our investigation today, La Querida. So it is retail tycoon Rodman Wanamaker II that will hire Addison Meisner to build La Querida in 1923, the cost of that build approximately $50,000. Rodman Wanamaker will sell that home to Joseph P. Kennedy in 1933 for $120,000. It is a heck of a deal, especially for the 200 feet of oceanfront that you get, as well as the, what was it, 15,000 square feet of home, 11 bedrooms, 12 bathrooms, and three half baths. Joe Kennedy, himself a man with a lot of ambition and an expanding family, will buy the adjacent lot next to the home for expansion. Now, because Addison Meinsner has passed at this point, Joe Kennedy will then go to the latest of high society architects, Maurice Faccio. Faccio, he is another huge deal in Palm Beach. Maurice Faccio gets his degree from Zurich Polytechnic and then will move to New York City. Faccio partners with William Trainer at a firm originally, but then these two, Trainer and Faccio, break off and begin to do their own thing in about 1921. Within three years, they are headed down to Palm Beach in addition to their New York office with Faccio really doing the bigger part within our island town. Faccio comes in and sort of picks up a a thread from Meisner. Faccio is a little less Mediterranean and a little more Italianate. Faccio will soon begin to get a big name for himself about the place. He's not only brought in for new building, he is also being brought in for redesigns. Joe Kennedy needs one of those. Enter Maurice Faccio. Now a little drop here. Maurice Faccio builds his own home on the island on South Ocean Boulevard. He will build this home in 1929 for his bride, author Eleanor Chase. There is a home right next door (laughs) that will factor into Done and Done in short order, This home is known as Casa Aleda. It is built for Mortimer Schiff and his wife Adele. Casa Aleda is known as the Ham and Cheese House. Please stay tuned for the details of that investigation. That is not the concentration of Done and Done today. We are here for Maurice Faccio, who is happily doing his architecture bit in Palm Beach with his wife Eleanor and two children. During World War II, 
Faccio begins working on military projects and eventually joins the OSS under Wild Bill Donovan, where Faccio remains until his untimely death at the age of 46. Back to the Kennedy home. Here we come, Papa Joe Kennedy. After his initial entree into Palm Beach, he really likes the scene. Honey Fitz, as his father-in-law, has introduced both Joe and Rose to the area after their wedding in 1914. In a previous episode, we have talked about Joe Kennedy having a bit of a fling with Gloria Swanson in the late 1920s. We've got a Not Done Yet coming about the Kennedys in Palm Beach this week on Patreon, but Joe Kennedy is really drawn to this area, and so by the early 1930s, he is shopping for his own home. He finds it in La Querida. With that adjacent property, Maurice Faccio expands the house and will add a two-story garage building, a tennis court, and a pool pavilion. It is fair to say, just in real general terms, that a lot of stuff happens within this home for the Kennedy family over the course of their time there, 62 years. Let's see. This place is used as the Kennedy Winter White House during his time in office. John F. Kennedy will spend his last weekend alive at this home in November of 1963, and the home at that time was undergoing the process to become Kennedy's campaign headquarters for his next presidential run for office if his own untimely death had not occurred. Few lessons learned from that 1960 run out in Palm Springs. We were moving locations to Palm Beach for the next run. John F. Kennedy will actually pick most of his cabinet at this home, but even before that, he'll spend the winter before he is inaugurated as president here. He writes much of his inauguration speech at the home. He likes to write there. According to local legend, he writes a bit of his 1956 book, Profiles in Courage, at La Querida too. After Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy gives birth to John F. Kennedy Jr., she will recuperate at the home. Not the only things, honestly, Dominic Dunn writing about the Kennedys themselves and particularly this home would be its own season. And we will get <laughs> to all those stories. Let's focus still on the house here. Joe buys this home in 1933. By the time 1941 rolls around, Joe Kennedy Sr. has made this his permanent legal residence. Super handy as Florida has had no state income tax since 1924. Little bit of a side benefit there. Even when Joe Kennedy Sr. passes away, Rose Kennedy will use the home throughout the remainder of her life until her death in 1995. When the Kennedys sell the home in that same year for $4.9 million. The home is sold to a very nice couple. They're the Castles, and they will pay, the Castles will, $4.2 million for the home, and then about another $800,000 for the furniture. And this home really is truly kind of an amazing presentation of a time capsule. You have Rose Kennedy's stuff. You have things with her handwriting, her labels. But from the time Rose Kennedy moved in, nothing has been updated. 
So the original Addison Meinsner furniture is there. But when it comes to no updates, do know that when the castles buy this house, no updates have been done. There's no air conditioning either. There have been no renovations or upgrades to the home through the years. I mean, maybe if you're there in the winter, air conditioning isn't a big thing, but in the summer, heck no. It is after Rose Kennedy's death and the death of the last of her children, Jean Kennedy, that the home is put up for sale. Now, the Castles live and love this place for a few decades caring for the home that they feel like is a true legacy. The Castles do manage to get the gates of the home landmarked. The Kennedy family had fought against historical preservation status over a dozen times. I want to say 15 was the latest count. What does that mean? Why would we fight against that? More money, more permits. La Quarita is a home built on purpose with a very high gate. You can't really see much in, but alas, historical status means way more meetings with the town council board, and it doesn't really sound like the Kennedys were too into that. The castles are, at least for the gates of the home, and then they begin their renovation and updates to the property when they buy it. The castles will retain much of the original Kennedy furniture, but also the Addison Meinsner pieces original to the home. What happens to the house here? The castles will sell in 2016, with the home going for $31 million. There is also an auction of all the stuff from the home held that same year. In this auction on offer by Leslie Hinman Auctioneers, there are about a hundred lots of fine furniture and decorative arts. Taking a look from the catalog here, highlights of this sale include a pair of Venetian-style walnut beds where the future president slept alongside his brother, Joe Kennedy Jr., and later Jackie Kennedy during their Winter White House retreats. Also available will be the walnut-framed massage table where John F. Kennedy received therapeutic massages for his back ailments. The Louis XV provincial-style mahogany banquet table, where the Kennedy family enjoyed many meals, will be available. Included in the sale are several lots of furniture by Addison Meinsner that were original to the home. One example is an Italian walnut Savonarola chair that became known as Honey Fitz's chair, a favorite of Mrs. Rose Kennedy's father. So the castles sell the home, $31 million. This is in 2016, furniture gone, now we got a whole new house. In 2016, there is another layer of renovation and updates. This time, the home is restyled back with some of its original period features to be sold again in 2020 for about double the profit, a little more, $70 million. Quite a long way from that original build price of $50,000 from Rodman Wanamaker all those years ago. But hey, we're moving along through the 21st century, and now we're going to move it back again for the next of our presidential winter White House's Marlago. Oh, Marlago. Its very name means sea to lake in Spanish. This property and home was an enormous deal even before Donald Trump found it. There's a lot of history here and so many spider webs too. 
Let's go ahead and back up a bit and get to the magnificent home, Mar-a-Lago, the former home of Marjorie Merriweather Post. This is only one of her homes, and quite a storied history Marjorie has. She was covered on my other podcast, Trashy Divorces. If you want her divorce saga, go tune into that. Here on Done and Done, we did mention Marjorie Merriweather Post last week in our Grand Dames episode. Just a little bit of a brief biography as we get her to Palm Beach. Marjorie Merriweather Post is the only child of Charles W. Post, who creates Postum Cereal Company, which will, in 1929, become General Foods. Marjorie's father dies in 1914. But no worries, Marjorie's just going to take over his business. Marjorie, being good in business, is also pretty good in marriage. (laughs) She'll have a few husbands. Four, in fact. Marjorie marries for the second time in 1922, Edward F. Hutton, with whom Marjorie Merriweather Post will build Mar-a-Lago. E.F. Hutton and Marjorie Merriweather Post divorce in 1935, but the building of this home happens in the late 1920s. But not that Marjorie is a stranger to Palm Beach. She begins wintering there as early as 1909, in the years of her husband number one. She and hubby number one at this point would rent a seaside cottage for the season. 1909, y'all, remember this is pre-Meisner. This is pre the era of grand home building on the island. That's not coming in until the 1910s, 1920s. So here in 1909, you're looking at the land of pre-development. You have tiny seaside cottages. Cottage homes, they're not really built for massive entertaining. That happens more in the hotels, the Breakers, the Royal Poinciana. By the time Marjorie Merriweather Post marries E.F. Hutton in 1920, a scant 11 years later, times have changed. Things are a little bit different. The newly married Marjorie and E.F. will decide to make Palm Beach their official winter headquarters. And Marjorie gets to work. Her first project during the winter of 1921 was to raise money for the Good Samaritan Hospital. This charity function of hers raised $110,000. But it's not just charity functions that Marjorie's doing. It is some home building, too. EF and Marjorie first live in a Marion Wythe-designed home. This is Hogarcito on Gulf View Road. This whole street was platted and developed and designed in partnership between E.F. Hutton, Marjorie Merriweather Post, and Marion Wythe. It's a huge deal. I really got into a spiderweb on this one, which is not the focus of today's story, but let me sum up the couple's first home before we get to Mar-a-Lago. E.F. Hutton and Marjorie Merriweather Post, newly married, as silent partners, buy some land from Paris Singer, which is right adjacent to the Everglades Club. Our newly marrieds will partner with Mary and Wife to build five spec homes on Gulf View Road. Each of these five homes has an adjacent lot next to it available for sale. Maybe... They want to expand that home at some point. 
maybe we're just developing a neighborhood for what Marjorie Merriweather Post calls the right kind of young marrieds. Gulfview Avenue is one street below Worth Avenue, and they kind of do this fun trick in its development. There is an alleyway put in between Worth Avenue and Gulfview Road for this spec neighborhood adjacent to the Everglades Club. Marjorie Merriweather Post wants her own subdivision. She wants her own neighborhood for the people she decides she wants to let in. So we shall build it. And they do. Marjorie Merriweather Post and E.F. Hutton live in their home here on Gulfview called Hogarcito until Mar-a-Lago is complete. Once Mar-a-Lago is complete in 1927, E.F. Hutton's brother will buy Hogarcito on Gulfview at that time. Now here's what's kind of a big deal, friends. (laughs) We've talked about the Ballinger Award before. In 2021, the collective 11 properties on Gulfview Road win, collectively, which has never happened before, the Ballinger Award for preservation. It's for the first time in history, it goes to the entire street, which is really interesting. Again, not the focus of this story, but homes and preservations really do fascinate me. Okay, so circling back around here, we have a home. Marjorie Merriweather Post has Hogarcito. She's outgrowing it. And even the extra lots and all of her ideas just can't keep up with what's happening. And after being in Palm Beach, making it their winter residence for a few years, Marjorie thinks like, okay, I've built my own subdivision. Why don't I just open my own club? Sure, the Everglades is super cool, but... Can we make a more exclusive one? I have a neighborhood now for the right kinds of young marrieds. Let me just make a club exclusively for us too. So just a few years after Hogarcito is finished, the Huttons will buy Swampland. This is in 1924 when she and E.F. Hutton will buy this Oh, God, parcel, it's jungle lots. It's swampland. It's an alligator farm. But they're going to buy this huge plot of land in order to, one, begin the bath and tennis club and also to build a grander home. Bath and tennis being built over on the side. We're here for Mar-a-Lago. Marjorie begins working with Marion Wythe to design this home, and he was doing great things on the inside. But he's not really nailing the exterior of the home the way that Marjorie prefers. So Marjorie calls her friend Florence Zigfield. He'll step in. You know, Florence Zigfield of the Zigfield Follies. He's like, yeah, I'm pretty good at designs. You know, my whole Zigfield Follies thing. I got a guy for you, Joseph Urban. Joseph Urban steps in at this point into Marjorie's world and his designs are terrific but they're going to crash through Marjorie's $1 million budget in no time flat. The total cost of Marlago when it is complete will be around $2.5 million, with Marlago finally being completed in January of 1927. The first big, big event is in March of 1927, held at the home. It's a little pre-party for the annual Everglades Costume Ball. 
held the night before that costume ball, but that's not the only event that happens in 1927. The Bath and Tennis Club opens that year in its official building. Built as the right club for the right kind of people, the Bath and Tennis will have its own formal opening February 1927. That building, in addition, was designed also by Joseph Urban. E.F. Hutton and Marjorie Merriweather Post, in selling the land for the Bath and Tennis, off of their property, do build in a little provision here. The land that the Bath and Tennis is on is sold for $30,000, but the Huttons added a little inclusion that they could build a tunnel to the beach directly from their home to the Bath and Tennis. So again, Marjorie Merriweather Post, if you build it, you can make the rules. Let's do a quick rundown of the home itself, Marlago, taking this directly from the marlago.com website. About the home, there really are some interesting details in here. The main house is an adaptation of the Hispano-Moresque style, long popular among the villas of the Mediterranean. It is crescent-shaped, with an upper and lower cloister along the concave side of the building that faces Lake Worth. A 75-foot tower tops the structure, affording a magnificent view in all directions for miles. Three boatloads of Dorian stone were brought from Genoa, Italy, for the construction of the exterior walls, arches, and some of the interior. The stone was chosen for its quality of aging rapidly and for its adaptability to intricate carving. Upon close examination, tiny seashells and fossils can be seen in this distinctive stone of the 114-room ocean-to-lake villa. One of the attractions of Mar-a-Lago is the prominent use of old Spanish tiles throughout. Post acquired approximately 36,000 tiles that had been collected by the late Mrs. Horace Havermeyer in the 1800s. Among the earliest tiles, dating back to the 15th century, is the Plus Ultra tile, translated to Beyond the Ultimate, a Roman influence upon the Moors. The architecture, sculpture, planning, and craftsmanship that went into this magnificent estate could not be duplicated today. It was Post's plan to bring together many old-world features of the Spanish, Venetian, and Portuguese styles. She worked closely with Marion Wythe, a well-known architect, on the exact size, placement, and design of the floor plan. Joseph Urban, once the architect for Emperor Franz Joseph and for the Khedive of Egypt, was called in from Vienna for the more elaborate details. Urban was then sent to Vienna for eminent sculptor Professor Franz Barwig and his son, who worked for nearly three years modeling and carving extraordinary sculptures. The models for the parrots, monkeys, and other motifs are still preserved on the premises. Practically all labor came from adjacent areas. The ironwork was cast and wrought in West Palm Beach, and the fine old cypress wood for doors, beams, 
and every other possible use was purchased locally. The only exceptions were the Dorian stone, the Spanish tiles, the approximately 2,000 Cuban roofing tiles, and 2,200 square feet of black and white marble from an old castle in Cuba, which was used for the dining room floor. They just don't make them like that anymore. So what happens? Marjorie Merriweather Post lives in this home for the next 40-plus years. She's well-known for her lavish entertaining and her lavish hostess skills. She's also really, truly a grand dame of Palm Beach. She is all up in philanthropic and charity events as well. In 1969, the Department of the Interior will designate Mar-a-Lago as a historical site. It is then placed on the National Historic Register in the year 1972 by an act of Congress. The following year, 1973, Marjorie Merriweather Post does pass away, and after her death, Mar-a-Lago the estate was willed to the United States government for use as a diplomatic and or presidential retreat? I mean, and why not? It has hosted plenty of dignitaries and high society people and VIPs through the years. It has a great location, being kind of all in the middle of everything. In addition, the home itself is pretty incredible. Again, they don't build them like that anymore. At the time, 1973, Richard Nixon doesn't care too much for Palm Beach. He prefers Key Biscayne. So Marlago the home sits, this grand lady of a home, goes unused for about 10 years with the United States government not taking any action. And y'all, you can't leave a home that grand and magnificent sitting that long unattended the home will revert back to the Post Foundation in 1985, which opens up a way for Donald Trump to buy that home, which brings us back around to our man Nick. Okay, y'all, Dominic Dunn is hot on this scene when he visits in 1986 for his piece in Vanity Fair, The Women of Palm Beach. Because it's not just Donald Trump that's arriving at this time, there is another wealthy man who makes his own impact on Palm Beach. We mentioned this just a bit in the Grand Dames episode. Dominic Dunn will write about these two men about to make their impact onto Palm Beach in 1986. Dunn writes, The two ladies discussing the imminent arrival on the Palm Beach scene of two of the most successful young businessmen in America, Leslie Wexner and Donald Trump. Last season, Wexner, the low-profile head of the Limited and some 2,500 specialty apparel shops, and with a personal fortune of $1 billion, was the subject of much speculation when he purchased the magnificent estate of Charles and Jane Reitzman for $10 million as a companion piece to his recently purchased $6 million house on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Okay, we've heard a bit about this. Wexner causes quite a bit of controversy. We know the home he buys is Blythe Dunes, the showplace of Charles and Jane Reitzman. 
Dunn continues writing. Then, in a spectacular candy spelling gesture that shocked Palm Beach, he, Les Wexner, raised the famous house to the ground. He is now in the process of building himself a Versailles-type mansion. He is unmarried and thus far virtually unknown in Palm Beach. I don't know, four decades on, Les Wexner is much more famously known now, oftentimes by his association with Jeffrey Epstein. Our man Nick, not too much of a line I can find on Epstein, and that's not the story we're following today, is the next bit of Dunn's writing gets to all the juice happening in 1986 and the Winter White House, the future President Donald Trump, way, way before he's president. All right, Dunn continues in The Two Women of Palm Beach about the second of these wealthy men making their entrance into our island. In January, Donald Trump of the real estate fortune and his wife Ivana purchased for a mere $5 million the 118-room mansion called Mar-a-Lago, the former home of the late Marjorie Merriweather Post, which had been on the market for $15 million. Mar-a-Lago was conceived by a Ziegfeld set designer in a melange of architectural styles. The Trumps have hired a Palm Beach decorator and claim they plan to spend several months of the year here. There is, however, a lurking suspicion among a lot of the members of the Bath and Tennis Club, which is next door to Mar-a-Lago, that the Trumps have inside knowledge that gambling is returning to Palm Beach and they intend to turn Mar-a-Lago into a gambling casino. Or maybe just a private club. Put that in your pocket for a decade down the road from Trump's acquisition of Mar-a-Lago in 1985. Dunn continues writing, The Palm Beach Daily News is known affectionately as the shiny sheet because it is printed on a superior quality of glossy paper which guarantees that it can be handled without soiling the fingers or staining the white morning linen. A 92-year-old institution, the shiny sheet is devoted exclusively to Palm Beach life both social and every day. Mrs. Vincent Dratty sues for divorce was the headline of one recent front-page story which recounted the details of the latest in Palm Beach's predilection for messy, no-holds-barred divorces. Another read, Foundation Dinner Dance lives up to its billing. Another, Hard Cash Gets Trump a Bargain, referring to the purchase of Mar-a-Lago. There was a subhead, Trump Pays Extra for Estates Furniture. It is a nice mention of the shiny sheet there. It is Donald Trump that lands into Palm Beach with a, a splash, a thud, a plan, who really knows. There's a lot to unpack in Dunn's writing there, and he has a little bit more to say, too. He will continue from the women of Palm Beach. They'll never get into the clubs, says one faction about the Trumps. Another faction isn't so sure. They'll let them a little bit in, they say. Earl E.T. Smith is behind them. Earl E.T. Smith is a former ambassador to Cuba, a former mayor of Palm Beach, a one-time husband of a Vanderbilt, and his support is considered as good as you can get. And the Trumps, whom one woman referred to as the quote-unquote new darlings of Palm Beach, 
have made a smart social move to start off their life here. They have offered Mar-a-Lago to the Preservation Foundation of Palm Beach for its annual ball. Earl E.T. Smith, let's back up a little bit. What Vanderbilt was he married to? Earl E.T. Smith was married to Consuelo Vanderbilt. This is a new one, (laughs) y'all. This is the daughter of William K. Vanderbilt II. This is not the original Consuelo. Our original Consuelo Vanderbilt, Balsan, would be the aunt to this Consuelo Vanderbilt. Earl E.T. Smith marries Consuelo Vanderbilt, niece of our Consuelo Vanderbilt, Balsan, owner of Casa Alva, connected into all of our Gilded Age magic before. Again, our Dominic Dunn cinematic universe is a very, very tiny, small place. High society world, y'all. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. Nothing's linear. Everything's connected. Okay, so Trump does come on in. 1985, he's going to find his way to land in his own place into the scene by offering Marlago for balls for events. And maybe it's okay, like those ladies said, quoted in Dominic Dunn's piece, that they won't get into the clubs because... Donald Trump is just going to make his own. I'm taking this bit directly from the MarlagoClub.com website about Marlago becoming its own private thing. In April of 1995, Marlago became established as the Marlago Club. It is the last remaining Palm Beach estate still containing its buildings and land in almost identical form as its original conception. With the granting of easements to the National Trust for Historic Preservation, the Marlago Club carries with it a built-in constituency that ensures its stewardship into the future. The Marlago Club offers a magnificent swimming pool, an award-winning beauty salon, a world-class spa, five red clay championship tennis courts, and a remarkable croquet court. The property also boasts two retail outlets, a tennis pro shop overlooking Lake Worth, and a boutique adjacent to the Mar-a-Lago Spa. In addition, the gold and white ballroom has been modernized. The pitch and putt golf course was brought back to life, and a magnificent beach club was built, the finest on the island of Palm Beach. The all-new Donald J. Trump Grand Ballroom was completed in 2005, and at 20,000 square feet, is the largest on the island. The exterior was designed in the Spanish Mediterranean style to conform to the exterior of the house. The interior is in a Louis XIV gold and crystal finish that is one of the finest spaces of its kind in the country. In a new building adjacent to the ballroom is a complimentary state-of-the-art kitchen. Mar-a-Lago Club has a special quality of timelessness that transcends the transition into the new millennium. The splendor, style, and elegance of what may be the world's most beautiful and exclusive private club is truly ageless. The Trump Organization has invested millions of dollars in restoring and upgrading this quote-unquote jewel of Palm Beach, ultimately creating the finest experience in world-class luxury 
relaxation, dining, entertainment, and recreation, all in an unparalleled setting. And that is for certain. An extraordinary home in an unparalleled setting built by one of Palm Beach's grandest of doms. Hey, and that's not the only lady we're talking about today. For all my Patreon folks, I do have a Dundrop coming up at the end of this episode. Dundrops are a little bonus extras at the end of some of our Dun and Duns. Today's Dundrop is going to focus in on Dina Merrill, the daughter of Marjorie Merriweather Post, quite an extraordinary woman in her own right. It is one of Dina Merrill's husbands and the scandal he is unknowingly caught up within that leads our man Nick to beginning his third act in life as a writer. Patreon friends, stay tuned for that. If you want to get in on that little bit of an extra investigation, be sure to check out patreon.com slash done and done for early and ad-free episodes for done drops and not done yet bonuses too. We have a few of those coming up this week as well. As always, thank you for listening and spending your time with me today for this presidential winter White House journey. As always, thanks for telling your friends about Done and Done, for your kind emails, for your reviews, for all your support. I am so thankful and grateful for y'all. I am wishing you the very, very best of weeks. We're going to be wrapping down our month of Palm Beach Chronicles coming shortly for you. And until we meet again then, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.